can really figure out what you're passionate about, what you like, it's going to be a lot easier to navigate your career. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, the cusp show where we talk about the business of sports, media, disruption, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito, back at the end of the 2023 fall semester at Columbia here in late December with my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom, a couple more before the year ends, maybe. Yeah, maybe maybe two more. And um, we referenced it last week, Joe, but we, sh- we should acknowledge it when the actual day comes. But the eight-year anniversary later this up. month for our first year. Actually, it must be around now because I don't think we did it because we used to do these in person. We did not do it during the Christmas break, obviously. So it must have yeah. been right around now. So why don't we just say today's our eight-year anniversary. It is. Happy anniversary, no matter where you're listening. Thanks so. to everybody at Columbia for supporting us. Thanks to Mike Schroeder, our producer, current producer, and all the past producers, a notable list of friends and industry colleagues now, James Appel, Maurice Eisenman, the list goes on. Ben Walsh Gallery. Yeah, Taylor Bernardo. Yeah, amazing yeah. group of, of, of people that has have helped us through the years. Um, Joe, I saw something this morning that made me smile and giggle a little bit. Um, you read um, Kendall Baker in the mornings, I believe. Did you see his little piece today about the bull? The bull. about Colorado School of the Mines, by any chance? Uh, <laughs> so, did you no. see the thing okay. about the bull? The bull season that's starting tomorrow. Yes. Yep. So do you remember, how many bulls are there this season, Joe? 37? Uh, they're close. There's 41 bulls. <laughs> I thought it was almost like the onion when I was reading this piece. So let yeah. me just name a few that probably most of us have never heard of. Pop-Tarts? The, You're going to name Pop-Tarts, The right? 68 Ventures Bowl, the Quick Lane Bowl, the Potato Bowl. The famous toastery bowl, the first responder bowl, the let's see the other ones I thought were funny. Uh, ReliaQuest bowl. I don't even know what this company is. ReliaQuest, Sure Bowl. That's why they're doing. That's why they're sponsoring the bowl. And finally, in your honor, the Pop Tarts bowl. Well, (laughs) Duke's famous mayo. Don't forget that one, which is always a good one. Oh my God! With mayonnaise, if you win. It's almost um, so it's, you just take the word bowl and substitute it for the word game, and you can get more sponsorship dollars and a, a media deal. Like, that's what it's come to. So that's, I think it's important to start using the, the word bowl. Like, that would be my strategic advice to other other uh, properties. It, it's like basketball tournaments used to be classics. There was right. nothing classic <laughs> about any of it. it was the, um, in fact, it was the exact opposite. Right, or festivals. Like, tomorrow in yeah. New York City is the, ho- the holiday, the holiday festival. festival. Right. Yeah. There's no festival going on. So, yeah. Um, well, hey, look, so- the power of marketing, which we'll be talking about today, the power of marketing yeah. never, never changes. If you do it right with the right kind of copy, the right angle, the vi- right vibe, it still works. It is um, the late, the late, late Joe Kennedy, the father of the president. His famous line is, You are who you say you are. And, yeah. uh, um, but I will say, our colleague Chris Lincheski is involved with some of these balls. Uh, there's one, and I can't remember what it's called. It's a company based in Omaha, a coffee company based in Omaha. And he actually walked me through why they do it, which was kind of interesting. It's like, we're going to activate in Texas. We're growing in Texas and we want to do some local stuff, but we're also working with 
the winner of the Mountain West and whoever else it was that they're doing it. Um, and that's the way we're going to use this as a platform for the way Outback used the Outback Bowl to grow. Now, in this day and age, I don't know if that's actually possible. Outback Bowl was probably 25 years ago, and they had some pretty high-level teams playing it at some point. But, you know, more power to these schools, you know, the mediocre schools that get in that, that justify coaches' jobs and, um, you know, give them some pop. And, and you know, then you end up in New York with the Pinstripe Bowl, the New Era Pinstripe Bowl, by the way, right. which has Rutgers and Syracuse, Rutgers and – uh, but like two schools that actually, if you play during the regular season in Yankee Stadium, will probably draw twenty five thousand people anyway. So, yeah. Yeah. well, anyway. I want to actually. I was just as you were saying that, I was thinking like, who actually sells these deals to these oh. companies? It's it's well, it's a combination. So most of the bowls are run for not by not for profits. So they use it as a charity uh, event to do it. Oh. Some of the bowls are sold by. You know, IMG and Learfield. Well, maybe we can ask our guest this since yeah. he has some experience in this area. So right. anyway, all right, let's let's move on to things outside of the bowl season. Um, to a, you know, maybe a little bit of a bigger property globally than than college for you know third tier college football. We're going to talk a little bit about Formula One today, and uh, I've had the privilege of knowing our guest way way before he ever got to Formula One, way way before he actually got to spending almost 10 years with the Washington Redskins slash commanders um, on their, their strategy and sponsorship side in kind of the, some, a lot of the glory days, I guess, or the late glory days of that franchise before, you know, they've gone on to what they are now. Um, but Christian Matthews his primary focus these days. And it's something that I know Tom is near and dear to your heart is heavily involved in the growth of Formula One, especially in this country, because he is the Vice President of Partnership Development for the Americas for Williams Racing, obviously, you know, a longstanding, but really an up-and-comer in terms of the way they're developing their brand in this country, actually in North America. So we're going to talk a little bit about F1, the difference of F1, how a team works, uh, and more importantly, how someone from the bowels of Villanova and working for um, Taylor strategy at one point ended up in this position at uh, Williams Racing. So, Christian Matthews, welcome to the Cusp Show. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to uh, see you guys, uh, and thank you for having me. Yeah, where to begin? So much to chat about. Why don't you just run through for the for the benefit of the, the listeners, kind of how to answer Joe's question? How did this all come about? You were I, I, when I read your background, I saw that you were uh you have a legal degree a jd and you were a lawyer for a while but i get the sense that maybe you had some thoughts about not being a lawyer after a while is that accurate it's very accurate um yeah i i i have had i've been fortunate and blessed i've had uh multiple different iterations of my career uh which i've always tried to um uh, leverage in the sense of like just continuing to evolve and innovate and build on my own skill set. But yes, yeah, so I, I went to Villanova undergrad. Um, third tier bulls are very of interest. I did. I played football in college. So I, I collegiate football is a big uh, uh, area of fandom for me. Uh, I went right to law school. So I did not go work first. I went to law school and I kind of, I'm originally from the Washington DC area. I kind of thought I was going to be a lawyer for the government. 
Um, and in law school started, I, I worked for firms. I worked for a judge, like nothing was really speaking to me. Second summer of law school, I interned at Octagon and that's when my, where I'm at now, like really started to, the seeds were planted. Um, and I knew I was kind of onto something, if you will, because I really enjoyed what I was doing and all I was, all I was doing was editing, you know, uh, sponsorship contracts, the likes of MasterCard and Bank of America, and you know, right. really, you know, the, the the importance are in the details, right? But like, mm -hmm. really, in the details of of these things. Um, and I had friends, contemporaries, who were at high paying legal summer jobs, making a lot more money, uh, and I enjoyed what I was doing, and they did not. And um, I, as I started to network and talk to people. A recurrent theme kept coming up. I know it's you know it comes up even probably more so in today's day and age of like if you can really figure out what you're passionate about, what you like, it's going to be a lot easier to navigate your career than just air quotes because a job is a any job is a job and you know it, it's important. But um, for me at least, that set off a, a chain of, of of reactions. So yes, I graduated law school. I look going to law school is an expensive proposition. It's not for the finished <laughs> part. Uh, law school loans are actually a real thing. You do have to pay back the money that you borrow to uh, pay for your education. Um, I did go work in, for a couple firms as I was trying to figure out my way in, not necessarily into the sports space, but like, what do I want to do with my life? What am What am I good at? And um, that's how I came to be at Taylor, which is how I've known Joe for uh, close to 20, some 20, 20 odd years. And um, that that's really how I got my foot in the door of the industry. Good for you. Well, you know what? It's nice that you recognize this so early. It, it usually it it usually hits people you know, when they're when they're a little bit older, maybe after yeah, ten I mean, years in a law firm or something. It, it's, that's exactly it. Like I talked to a lot of uh, attorneys that were probably five to 10, 15 years in, and and as I told them some of you know my experience with with Octagon, they're like, oh my gosh, if you have the ability to get into sports now, you're not going to be able to make that jump at forty. When you're a partner or, you know, very, you know, there are obviously lawyers that work in the sports space that are, you know, at firms doing, you know, deal flow and contracts and all sorts of stuff. I also knew in law school, I didn't want to be a player agent, um, which was a big thing uh, because not to, not to, you know, it was just not the right fit for me and not what I wanted to do. And I figured that out early on. So when I told people, Hey, I played sports in college. I'm in law school. And they were like, oh, you're going to be an agent. And I, I was like, no, nah, I, I didn't. And what Octagon actually opened my eyes to was the business side of sports. And mm -hmm. what I figured out in that internship over the, the that summer was um, I became a lot more aware of the power of corporate interest in sports. And I realized that even with the evolution of digital media, because this was in the early mid 2000s and social was still, you know, in this, you know, relative infancy, new, yeah. the corporates, uh, you know, big entities were always going to spend money in sports in some form or fashion, because that's where certainly from that point of view, now I'd say globally, but the American public was spending its time, energy and, and uh, you know, resources. Cool. So Christian, take us forward. You leave Taylor. 
uh, you end up back in your native DC working for the Washington NFL team, once known as the Redskins, then known as Washington Football Club, now known as the Commanders, uh, with some interesting times under Dan Snyder, which we don't have to go into. But talk us a little bit about that position, how that came about, and then pivot ahead, because it's really interesting. We talked about this before we started recording, about how the heck you ended up at Formula One as well. So, so the Redskins or the Commanders, to your consultantship to to Formula One because I know Tom's got a lot of questions about F one as well. Yeah, no, and yeah, this is exciting. Um, I mean, a theme in my career, no doubt about it, has always been um, building relationships with people, effective relationships, and being not just a good person, but um, being uh, the type of person that like I'm happy to make a phone call on somebody's behalf. I'm happy to provide insight to somebody if I can. And I try and pay a lot of that type of stuff forward um, with, you know, college and grad grad school students who are uh, trying to get into the business. I know we can talk about that later, Tom and Joe. But in my instance, that's exactly how I ended up at, at, at the Washington Redskins. I worked with a gentleman in New York uh, at Taylor uh, and, and our sister, their sister company at the time, Catalyst, named Sri Paul Shaw who went back to work at the Washington Redskins, knew I was from the area, uh, was interested in, in uh, knew I was a fan, knew I was interested in, and that's how I ended up there. And what was originally in my head going to be a year or two and then get back to New York and get into the agency business or work for a league turned into close to 10. Uh, and um, through a, obviously a number of different changes and opportunities, but the headline from all that was I worked with some really good people that were able to um, go into sponsors and prospects and even in our fans and the, the league and, and kind of say like, look like, you know, you're, you're reading something in the media over there, but like, this is the reality and you're dealing with me and you're dealing with some of my colleagues and be able to really explain that we could still deliver uh, on uh, what the power of the NFL can can help deliver, especially in the Washington, D.C. region. Um, and I, like I said, I was there for 10 years. The last three of which, this was interesting, we moved back to New York City. Uh, I was actually working remotely for the organization before COVID happened. Um, and then, uh, which was interesting in and of itself of being in New York City during COVID, but I set up, when I ended up leaving in the spring of 2022, I set up my own kind of consultancy arm, was kind of doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that, networking a lot. And I reconnected with a really good friend of mine who I've met, known for 20 years, who works at Williams Racing. And he, at the time, had said, hey, we, we need some some help, somebody like you, some that can help us think through commercial opportunities and again, as I mentioned, like a big part of my career is is where I've been fortunate enough is um, when I reach out to somebody saying, "Hey, I'm interested in this." Like I probably have a good you know relationship with that person, and they're willing to go the extra mile of setting me up with the right conversations, etc. Nice. So F one, let's yeah. get into it. Um, first of all, talk about. We can get into specific F1 questions, but I, I want to pick up on what Joe said before, because it's a really interesting question, particularly for younger people listening, developing their careers. So working, when you think about the property side of sports 
in team sports, you've got typically the juxtaposition of team jobs versus league jobs, which, as, as we all know, are pretty different experiences. They're, they can both be good. They can both not be good, depending on the circumstances. But when you go to a property like F1, that's a really different thing on a number of levels, not, not the least of which it's a global, truly a global sport, very different structure, very different power dynamic vis-a-vis the power brokers, et cetera. So just talk, just address that first, Christian, this difference of working in a really traditional structured organization like a team within the NFL to this new uh, environment you're in. Yeah, absolutely. I don't want to equate it to the Wild West because it is not the Wild West. However, there is there are there might each team, Williams, you know, uh, McLaren, Ferrari, basically run their own little. I don't want to say fiefdoms, but that's kind of what they are. Where it's like mm-hmm. everything is insular. It's really about um, you know we're not checking with the F1 of like, hey, should we do this business deal? Can we can we do this business deal? It's our prerogative. Like now there, there are some rules to the road, no pun intended, um, of what F1 allows teams to to monetize in my instance or, or do versus not do. Um, and obviously I should say between F1 and the FIA, like the racing side is very regulated. Yes. It's the business and marketing and kind of everything else, if you will, like PR included, uh, fan outreach, fan engagement, like uh, that each team is up to their own devices to to do. You you could, you know, there, there's 10 F1 teams as is currently set up. Like if there was an 11th or even one of the 10, if they didn't want to sell any sponsorships and just self-fund the car, they could. It's, it's all up yeah. to... You know the the um, the owner and leadership of of the team, and that is why there's such a discrepancy, if you will, between um, not again not on the racing side, but on the business side of there are teams on the grid that have uh, uh, a significant amount more sponsors and sponsorship revenue than we do at Williams. Um, some of that is is by design, but it it th- these these teams are very expensive to operate and and um, certain uh, decisions way above my pay grade and certainly way before I got there have have uh, put the sport into a place where um, the teams carry a lot of power and not that NFL teams don't carry a lot of power but they they fall they sing to the tune of what they, they follow they what the commissioner says they should do yeah, yeah. Um, Christian, uh, for those who don't know, walk us through kind of a Williams F1 101, drivers, location, um, and and how you're different, really, being based in North America than probably most of the other F1 teams. So there are 10 F1 teams. Each team has two drivers. So in any given race, there's going to be 20 cars um, battling for podium spots. the the sound bites I like to use on this or the, the 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 key points I like to use is Williams is the third oldest F1 team and the second most winning F1 team. So F1 has been been around for you know close to 50 years, maybe longer. Uh, that's an incredible legacy that we that we at Williams have. 
There's been something like 120 teams have come and gone because, again, wow. these are very expensive to operate. Uh, majority of F1 teams have their headquarters, uh, their uh, racing operations in the U.K., Obviously, a team like Ferrari is not in the UK, but in Italy. Uh, and so um, we happen to – Williams is not a – there's no Williams car. There's no Williams energy drink. Williams Racing is the brainchild of Sir Frank Williams, who passed away. Uh, and it was his racing team. It was a family racing business. And in, during COVID, the Williams family actually sold it to a private investment group called Doralton, which has its headquarters and offices here in the United States. So I happen to work out of our New York City office. We have a, a relatively new built out space, very Williams branded. But 95% of my colleagues, 98% of my colleagues are going to be over at our factory, which is about an hour and a half uh, to two hours outside of London. Wow. Nice. Um, so you start to get this job and you look at all the assets you have. You said it was a little bit of the Wild West. I noticed on the Williams site that I was reviewing that there are 23 partner partners listed. That's a lot of partners, obviously. Um, how do you think of the assets you have to work with in all your discussions, thinking about the strategy of commercial development, et cetera, just give us a, an idea of what the portfolio is for a potential sponsor. Interestingly, I don't know if Joe mentioned this to you, Christian, about a month ago, we had on the buy side of this story, we had a woman on who runs the partnership with UBS, from UBS with Mercedes, and we kind of got her perspective on things, but we, you're our first F1 uh, executive on Tell us about what it looks like. What what are you taught? What, what are you pitching? What are you offering? Well, so I'll I'll clarify some of the twenty three. So so there our partners structure is um, actually designed to be a, from a, a vantage point of somewhat exclusivity, um, not just in categories. Meaning, like we won't go sell. We have a relationship with Duracell, uh, the battery company. We're not going to go sell it to a, a secondary deal to a, another battery company. But even more so of some of the, the deals that are on that that um, site you saw are uh, kind of legacy deals that uh, at some point either may come off or they may stay. Some are very endemic to the sport, like. Um, you know, our helmet manufacturer or our suit manufacturer, thing, things like that. The broader commercial opportunities, frankly, stem from the, the the headline is because it is such a global sport, a brand that puts value in leveraging a global sport such as F1 with the immense reach that the sport has, that the, the team like Williams that has this incredible heritage and legacy, there are a immense amount of strategies that can be put into place that brain aware. I mean, F, where F1 is at right now is it is evolving beyond, I'll call it the spots and dots, but the stickers on the car to what we're very used to in the United States of like the logo on the outfield wall is great, but it's got to be part of a bigger cohesive marketing plan or it's not going to work. And it's just going to be an ego play, which sometimes happens. But mm -hmm. 
the real decision makers, especially in today's you know economic times, are being challenged. What's the return on this investment? What's how are we reaching our existing fan base, you know, our existing consumer consumer base, new new people to buy our product? So F one, some of this is happening as the quote unquote drive to survive effect, but. You're looking at content. You're looking at uh, hospitality. And, you know, bringing people into, uh, and we can get into this. Like F1 is in this massive education moment here in North America, yeah. where people, myself included, in this mix, did not grow up as an F1 fan. And now I'm watching. Obviously, I I have reason to, but I'm watching every race and I'm paying attention to things. And now my Instagram feed is just littered with. You know, posts from drivers and t- other teams and influencers that are around the sport, because that is the the um, echo chamber in a good way of like what is happening with the sport where it's growing up and leveraging all the different moving, pun intended, moving parts. Cool. So let's talk about F one in the in North America. Now there's five races, uh, and we had um, a while ago. Tom and I had a woman named Linda Ong on and talked about permanent emergence, which are these things that you hear about that are always about to explode. MLS being on that list, uh, F one probably could be on that list for North America because you keep hearing about the growth. But now there's a footprint of five races in North America. Um, the last of which obviously was Las Vegas in the middle of the night. Um, and how, so how does that change? How did that factor into your decision to go to, to Williams? And how has that, from what you've seen, changed the business in terms of the marketability of, of the sport and of the team here in, you know, in the good old US of A? Yeah, I think um, how, how it, I'll answer the, 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 uh, the one part first. How I ended up at Williams through that lens was like, it, I'd seen some of the drive to survive, but again, I wasn't a big major motorsports fan, but seeing the content and storytelling, and then also seeing what was happening via Liberty media with um, investing in places like Las Vegas, obviously the Miami race, Austin, Montreal and, and Mexico city, the five North American races. Like they, there is a major, uh, 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 you know, stake in the ground here by Liberty Media with Formula One in North America, and we all we all know like when when they need it to succeed <laughs> is the headline. Like so, they are going to continue to double and triple down because North America is the massive growth opportunity for the sport. The other sectors of the world have been experiencing Formula One in some form or fashion for the past you know for several decades, and so here it's it. There's been a couple you know, trial runs, false starts, if you will, uh, to try and build that. But now they've really uh, uh, you know, spent the resources to make it, you know, they, the the facility they built in Vegas, um, th- they're putting their North American offices there. Like they're u- leveraging it from a year-round perspective in that regard. Um, I think it, so much of the conversation right now with brands and agencies and and everybody in between here in the states is I, you know I know formula 1 is this thing but I've never really had to consider it as a major marketing right. asset walk me through why and then when we look from my vantage point we walk through a little bit of the F1 global stuff and then we immediately get into what who we are at Williams the legacy pieces of it and and why we are very, very uh, excited about where we're going 
um, as we're building up uh, not just the racing side, but the business side, having people full-time committed into New York City where we can get to anywhere in the country or anywhere in North America very easily and um, have those conversations. When we talk about the, the driver relationship, this is something that is still a bit mystifying to me. And it must be different for you, obviously quite different than the NFL. So you have two, two drivers, Alex Albon and, and Logan Sargent, Logan being the only American driver, which must be good for you guys from a marketing standpoint. But explain, Joe and I got into this a little bit with Annalise from UBS, but it, it still wasn't quite clear to me, especially from her perspective, which was as the sponsor, but as a principal in the company, or you know, in in the group, in terms of the uh, commercialization, what can you do, or do you think you should be doing with the drivers themselves? Because I don't believe there's a union. They obviously represent themselves. Like I imagine, from a sponsorship standpoint, for activities like Alex was in the Netflix thing, right? The golf thing. Yep, I recall. So yep. what, what's, what's so, the story on all that? Yeah. So the drivers have their own representation. The, um, uh, what, and, and F1 is a very, um, Tom, you might know this being a little bit more of an F1 fan, if you will, like every year there's this conversation that we just went through this, but we re-signed Logan Sargent. Exactly. I read who, that. Yeah. Um, his seat, if you will, was not guaranteed for 2024. And so there was a lot of media coming out of the last couple of races of the year, both, uh, I would say, actually just you know globally of like, is Logan coming back to Williams in 2024? And that's partially a Logan decision, but obviously a big part of that is the Williams decision of offering him that opportunity to be our, uh, you, know, you know, one of our marquee drivers. And so what, what, one of the things I'm learning is like that, he might not be, I mean, I can't speak to this, obviously, because I have no knowledge of it. But, like, just for example, Alex Albon might not be a Williams driver four years from now, three years from now. Logan mm -hmm. might not be, like, Max Verstappen might not be a Red Bull driver. Right. Like, these guys control a lot of, like, kind of where they want to go. That So you've got a couple elements of it. You've got that piece of, of the puzzle. Then you've got the their representation um trying to uh with with varying degrees of success create um you know, almost like influencer type business opportunities right. spokesperson type business opportunities but then yes from a team standpoint we leverage them a lot uh we uh have to incentivize them monetize you know pay for their time for you know traditional spokesperson type duties marketing activities and but Look, it makes sense. They're they have their own media ecosystems in and of themselves. They're uh, at least in Alex's standpoint. Like, I mean, he's a <laughs> he is a top flight driver and has a very um, uh, you know people around the world know him. What's funny is like you see these guys and they could walk maybe not Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen, but any of the other eighteen drivers could walk down the street in New York. And unless they're wearing gear, you probably wouldn't know who they are. Yeah. You do that with an NBA player or NFL player in London, and, and people would definitely quickly figure out, oh, these guys are, are somebody. Um, they are, whereas those same drivers, if they went to you know London or Rome or pick any other major city, would be it would be they would be mobbed. Right. Mm -hmm. 
have you seen that elevation just in the brief time you've been there, Christian? Like now there's more, and maybe it's Drive to Survive, maybe it's a bunch of other things, hopefully. Um, and you're obviously immersed in it, but have you seen like those random things like, wow, I would have never thought that an F1 driver or F1 would be mentioned in this group, like showing up on, I don't know, Hollywood Squares or something, you know, I don't even know if Hollywood Squares are around anymore. But well, Joe, you're really dating yourself with that reference. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, look, like, I think that's part of the, um, I, I, so I, I started picking up on that about a year ago when I was starting to pay attention of like this, it might be an opportunity for me professionally. Obviously, I've been a lot more attuned to it, but I I think where I've really started to notice it is not so much on the drivers, but it's it's definitely a result of all this of like the 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 um, hearing it from all. I see people wearing Red Bull gear and McLaren gear and Ferrari gear all the time now, and I you know just I, I shouldn't say just as much as you see a Yankees hat. It's it's obviously not no. that. <laughs> There's not that much Kool-Aid to drink, Christian. You can't do that yet. So. Yeah, well, but well, like, not, not around here, at least. Yeah, yeah but but um, you are starting to see some of that. And where that's coming from is like, look, some of these, uh, some of the brand integrations, especially with the drivers, I'm thinking of like uh, 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 Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton does a, has this personal endorsement with Monster Energy drink. Better, obviously, Red Bull. Monster Energy just did a deal with a different team called McLaren, but Monster Energy is keeping Lewis Hamilton as an influencer. Mm. That is the t- that speaks to um, just clearly it's working and they're using it effectively, uh, both on the Monster side and on the Lewis side. Th- that would be like having a, a Yankee deal, but featuring Shohei Otani. Like it's right. just it, it's a little wonky in that regard i think that's just proving the point of like these drivers are especially when you're at the upper echelon of of max and lewis like they are global icons it is just starting to hit its stride i I mean it's early on of hitting its stride here in the states so one of the questions as you talk about sponsorship going back to your days at the commanders um, obviously you had a limited amount of categories and sponsorship to sell because you only have eight home games and you're limited geographically. How does that change with Formula One? So do you sell sponsors in North America? Do you sell them for specific races? Do you sell them throughout the whole tour? Is it kind of like an a la carte thing? And is there a good example of someone since you've been there that's come on board that has really kind of embraced this new idea? So um, right now, our some of our some of our business most of our business strategy is from a global perspective of like if we do a deal we're we're not going to we're not carving up the rights and doing this and that i will say right before i started we signed with Mikkel Voltra the Anheuser-Busch brand which this was what we're really proud about in that regard is this is their first foray into F1, a relationship with Williams and one of the things i did notice both in Austin and Vegas is they put Logan and Alex on out of home signage that they paid for out of their own media budget. And you think of how powerful, you know, Anheuser-Busch's sports marketing has been for decades. Like they clearly know how to do what they they do. And so that was a really nice feather in our cap, to be honest, because it was like, you're, you're seeing a major 
global brand, but certainly a North American brand, really lean into not just the sport, but us Williams and F us uh, with, with having Logan as the only American driver and, and using his name and likeness on, on signs at the airport. Um, and so one of the things we're thinking through uh, as we're building back our, you know, uh, business, uh, I don't want to say pool, but just like our, our sponsorship portfolio is, do we, if and when we want to think of a North American deal versus a global deal and how we do that, like we're going to, we, we will, we will do things like that. Anheuser-Busch is a North American deal. We're talking to them on, on potentially a global, stepping up as a global opportunity. That's the only one that we've done. Everything else has been global focused. As our team continues to dive in more here in the United States, one of the things we have heard is like, I'm interested in Formula One. I want to get involved, but I'm not ready to step up to a you know, global opportunity. And we have a number of strategies that I think we've put in place to help solve some of that. One of which I can talk about, which is, again, one of the reasons I ended up at Williams when I figured this out. We have uh, we take a very NFL model to some of our marketing, which is you go to a race in North America, whether it be Miami, uh, Tech, Austin, or Vegas. When you have a ticket and you go to what they call track, when they go to track, um, you're probably not leaving tracks. So you're a captive audience there, and that's land that is very much dominated. Tom, to your your point, that is F1 territory. Like we mm-hmm. we have our own stuff, but we can't activate there. We're not bringing Anheuser Busch to activate at at the Vegas Grand Prix. Okay, yeah. Where we activate with them is off track. So we actually build up a fan zone that has has had anywhere from twenty to forty thousand fans. I don't know if they have tickets. I don't know if if they're just there and they're like stumbling through and coming through. So like the but, NFL experience kind exactly. of exactly. Yeah, we actually take a NFL experience model of an activation and take so like our fan experience in Vegas was on the strip, but it was it was down down the strip away from the track, and it you, you can't miss these things. Like you know, you're at Williams fan active fan pop up zone, right. and and it's an incredibly savvy marketing tool that we utilize to uh, both educate our consumers about F1. We bring drivers there to do, you know, meet and greets. We have a show car there, but from a commercial side, we, we bring partners to activate there. We leverage it to bring potential new partners to say, this is how we're thinking about, you know, what new opportunities can look like and look at how we're touching and feeling our fans. And more so in this interconnected world that we all are in, like we are, as every sports team in the world is, we're trying to fill our funnels with first-party data so we can make better decisions on who our fans are. We can use those insights to go to brands and say, I know that my fans are doing X, Y, and Z action. Why is what you sell? Let's do some really cool things and build off of that. And and so that is, I think I said this earlier, if not, like I'll re- reiterate it, Um that is where I think Formula One is growing up at, which is that sounds so basic as an American, given ten right. years of the NFL, and I certainly didn't invite, in, in, you know, uh, in, uh, invent that. Yeah. 
you know, and that was in place before I got here at Williams, to be clear. Like, we've got some really smart, sharp people who have spent time at the NFL, NBA, MLB, students from, you know, who have come through uh, Columbia there. Um, but that concept is a foreign concept to F1 teams because F1 teams have not had to do as much hand-to-hand combat of building up the right. pipeline of their fans as much as, say, American sports teams have. So, Christian, is the manifestation of that approach in the launch of Fan Capital, the car, the, the adjunct business you have? Can so, you so, explain that to everybody listening? Yeah, yeah so, so Fan Capital is the brainchild of the CEO of Fan Capital. His name is Aiden Lyons. He was a VP at the NFL. We, we talked about power of relationships. I, I knew him. 13, 14 years ago when I was at the NFL, um, stayed, have stayed in touch with him. And uh, he is uh, Williams' chief growth officer. And as part of that growth, basically the problem to solve was the this idea. F1 teams, just like any other sports team, tries to understand their, their fan base. And when you don't have an immense amount of first-party data, we don't. F1 teams don't control their own ticket inventory. We're a traveling circus. We're going to 24 cities next year in, uh, what, 22 countries? And the only two countries that have more than one race is Italy, birthplace of Ferrari, and the United States. Wow. <laughs> Everywhere else, it's their kind of – one of their – I mean, if not their largest sporting event of the year, one of the you know handful of large sporting events here – it's kind of like another, you know, Saturday night in Vegas where there's this massive, uh, you know, event. Now, it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm oversimplifying that, mm-hmm. sure. but one of the strategies that Williams and and now our, our our my sister company, our sister company, Fan Capital, is how do we, how do we go capture first party data? Because if we're smarter about first party data of who our fans are and the actions that they take, it it helps inform so much other stuff. How do we disseminate content? How are we marketing? How are we trying to grow this fan base? Certainly, obviously here in the United States, but even globally. And of course, from my vantage point, how do we use those insights and those data uh, points to go tell our story in meaningful ways to uh, the business community? And wouldn't it even be better in a perfect world if you could coordinate that with the nine other teams? Kind of like what leagues are trying to do with getting all the teams in line from a data capture, first party data capture and analysis approach. In in my opinion, with 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 uh, you know uh, you know just a guy at an F one team, so to speak. Yes, I mean, yeah. I, I'm fortunate. I know a couple people at some of the other teams are you know now um, having been in the sport for six months. Um, who are thinking very similarly. And I do think some of that is, is, you know, I don't want to say legacy F1 thinking, but it's, you know, Tom, you're right. Like things that I'm seeing now in 2023 and F1 team are some of the, you know, innovation that was taking place 10, 12, 15 years ago on the NFL team side. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned the regionality of, team uh, sponsorships in NFL and other team sports in the U S and you could make the argument well, and we know this happens in the NFL, 
big brands will do team will do deals with lots of different teams and that's fine because it's all essentially geo fenced uh, or used to be in some fashion this is different so when you're out there pitching it's conceivable that a brand is talking to the nine other teams and you're the 10th call and yep. you got to you got to present your best case of why yep. Williams is the choice what is, what is the essence of that kind of differentiation beyond the things you've already mentioned about the rich history and the, I mean, relative, uh, relatively good 20, well, a, a good 2023 season. What is kind of the pitch that, what parts of the pitch resonates the most right now for you? I mean, having an American driver, is that an influence? I mean, that, yeah. it, it, it does depend on the business, the, the, the company and like right. what they do. Um, F1 is this incredible, uh, very, very powerful B2B tool where it does attract a lot of decision-making C-suite uh, executives to come to races, interact with the sport as a byproduct. Introductions and networking become invaluable and business decisions get done just like they – in fairness, just like they get done at, on any given Sunday in any given NFL stadium mm-hmm. around the country, um, so I think that's that that is a ba- major component of it. The mass, uh, uh, you could talk about the awareness appeal, certainly globally, of what these, um, what our car versus and other cars you know, generate from viewership and stuff like that. But that's still even table stakes. A lot of it comes down to our. Um, I'm I, I'm 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 summarizing a lot, but what I would say is where where Williams is winning, um, and and driving some success on the business side is the pairing of um, an incredible legacy F1 team with people that have worked in and around F1 teams, you know, they're working our commercial and marketing department. So they know how things can get done. Plus an added layer of bringing in a couple people, including myself, Aiden being another one, Brian Mermelstein being another one who have worked in North American sports and know how to things get done in here in North America. And you've got a pretty potent combination of the two. Mm-hmm. And when we go in front of, um, you know, marketers and business decision makers, and we explain that it's a it that's a that's a strong uh, differentiator for what we we believe differentiator for us because there's nothing we can't figure mm-hmm. out and handle. Mm-hmm. We're we're willing to think outside the box and do something that's never been done before, like our fan zone. But at the same time, we're willing to do stuff that's kind of legacy F one things because it it clearly is you know working. Like there's reasons there's been a lots of brands who stayed in the sport. What is interesting, Tom, to your your point about the being the tenth team to the pitch is outside of a couple brands that are kind of like back office, if you will, like you know um, uh, some like kind of back IT things that you, yeah. you know, technology you need. A brand will not do two deals. Mm-hmm. So that is that was very. Uh, that was a key learning for me coming from a world where, well, what do you mean that a brand does you know, five to 27 deals all the time, especially if it's a big enough brand because each market is different. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, this is different. So there is a big uh, 
push to like, you know, when, when we're trying our, our, our getting in front of a decision maker and a brand that we think, or we know based on some intelligence that is, is sniffing around the sport. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a, a zero sum game. Like you don't it's get them. Zero-sum zero-sum game. He's, yeah. He or she's going to do one deal and yeah. there's 10 options. Yeah. I never really thought about that till this. Yeah. Year, it, so that creates yeah. a lot of, um, especially in categories that are open, obviously in certain categories, like I said, with Duracell, we're not going to, we're not going to sell another beer right now with Anheuser-Busch. Like we, you know, we love our partnership with that. Um, but in open categories where we know seven other teams have it, it's, it, we're, we're just as aggressive as they can be. Sure. Just a quick follow-up uh, uh, on this. Most American leagues, especially, and, and some teams will use agencies mm-hmm. as sales agents. Is that common in F1? I think it's uh, it is more common than I had anticipated. Um, I think the part of that is the evolution. I mean, this gets back to so much of what we've been talking about, the themes of, of just F1 and its teams kind of evolving and innovating here, or certainly here in North America, where the agencies, the ones that are in and around the sport, know how to get things done in F1. And I think there's a lot of value to that period. I also think as somebody who's on the commercial side, uh, who is of the opinion of like, we shame on us. If, if an agency is bringing us an opportunity that we hadn't thought about or a brand that we should be talking to that we Mm -hmm. hadn't yet. And, and, so I think there's room. I mean, look, there, there's we have relationships with with agencies. Agencies have relationships with our teams. The thing I will say about that is, from my perspective, it's the the thing that falls short on that part is when you have a situation with an agency that has a brand that's evaluating nine different F one teams. That how. It doesn't matter if it's Williams or McLaren or Ferrari. That agent is a basically commoditizing that marketing yeah. relationship. And I get it. They, they just want a transaction. They right. want to transact. And we're, we're in a world with it's it's relationship driven. If I'm putting you in front of our you know team principal and, and chairman of the board, like it, it's a lot deeper than this. We can yeah. deliver a lot more. So that is – that is one area where we've been evolving through a little bit um, because there's root. We, we love our, a lot of the agencies we're working with and, and friends with and, and, but we're also, you know, are they telling the Williams story the same level that I could, or some of mm-hmm. our colleagues can. And the answer probably not because Williams is evolving so rapidly right now. I wasn't there six months ago. You know, we've got p- people on our team who just joined three months ago. We we have a chief technology officer who's joined our racing side two months ago. Like, it's it just it's in this ever state of of innovation and change. A startup, fifty years in the making, probably sounds like kind of. Um, Christian, before we let you go, um, we always ask our guests two questions. One is, especially now that you're new to the sport. Where do you go to get your information? Who do you listen to? What do you read? And then you've made some pretty interesting career pivots uh, in your life. Um, people who are either pivoting careers or starting new, what's the advice you give them? So how do you get smart? And then how, what advice do you give? So um, there's, there's 
two buckets I would say on getting on getting smart. Um, the first one is from a macro sports perspective. I mean, podcasts like this are, are invaluable. I digest anything that Sports Business Journal or Sportico puts out because they uh, and there's others in that mix, but let's just call it the U.S. focused um, uh, uh, sports information. Sports yeah, the trade, the trade, yeah, the trades. Yeah, there, there you go. Yeah. My fault. That's, uh, That's right. <laughs> right. Um, because I also need to pay attention to what's happening in the NFL and the NBA and who's going to sponsor the in-season tournament. That takes a big brand off of my, you know, potential hit list, right? Like they're going to invest a lot of money and they've said, Oh, we're close to somebody, whoever it is, like they're, they're just going to spend a good amount of money on that. So it doesn't probably make sense for us to go call them the week after and say, Hey, you should do a deal with Williams. Mm -hmm. So I need to pay attention to a lot of that. And I think, um, I think uh, certainly what Sports Business Journal has done over the years is is invaluable to the industry. Uh, and then uh, where I'm evolving and leaning into is I'm trying to read motorsport.com and some of the other industry um, things that are very prevalent in you know Europe and the UK. Uh, I'm you know anything get back to Sportsman's Journal anything Adam Stern writes from SBJ because he's the motorsports writer like I'm reading everything so those two pieces of the puzzle like super in industry motorsports stuff and then also macro sports things um I could you know I live in suburban New York City I'm on a train four or five days a week back into the city into the offices so I'm listening and digesting a lot of podcasts usually in the sports you know ecosystem um and uh so so those are the two you know the, the areas how the um i'm sorry joe i've talked the, the advice side what's the advice you give to yeah the advice side. i give i think um i think i think there's a couple things i would say here one um every single student who listens to this or 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 watches this send me a note on linkedin i'm happy to talk to you for 15 minutes and give you any advice i can wow that's an offer joe i'm I'm a big forward guy seriously that's an amazing thing and if i if i were a student listening i i would hit you up asap it might not happen until january tom well i understand but seriously it's really generous of you to do that but uh christmas eve yeah yeah yeah. right right at midnight i'll uh Tell my tell my mother. Sorry, yeah. I take this phone call. Um, but more more seriously, like everybody in sports started somewhere, and um, I have not forgotten my roots. Obviously, we talked a little bit about that, so I'm happy to help in that regard. The second part is everybody goes to a school, whether it be high school, college, law school, graduate school, that has an alumni network, and somebody in that alumni network probably works in some form or fashion in the sports industry in some area, ticketing, you know, operations, whatever it is, just connect with them. I, you know, I obviously Joe, I went to Villanova, any Villanova student that sends me an email saying, Hey, Villanova grad asking some questions. I respond to that hundred percent of the time. And, and I, you know, I know people are busy, but if you are really smart and savvy and, and, and respectful, um, I, Everybody knows that this industry is about relationships. I should say everybody, but most people know that. And so if somebody is like, hey, I went to this really small school and you know, I know that there's one, like, send an email, send a note on LinkedIn. You you're never, you won't be so you might be surprised what happens and comes through on the on on the back end. 
Um, and and keep the faith. Like sports is an incredibly large space and growing. Um, you know, look at what's happening with the growth of women's sports. Like it, 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 all these startup leagues. Look, Formula One is maybe not a startup league, Joe, but like there mm-hmm. are jobs that haven't even been um, you know posted that will eventually. Be, so like, be ready when the time comes. And when you build up that relationship on that network and you're ready for the job, then it's an easy way to say, Hey, I'm interested in this role. Can I have a conversation? And, um, I think that's, I think that's pretty powerful. Cool. Tom, wow. any thoughts? No, it just reminds me of the, the old, uh, line that I always, uh, love, which we've used on this podcast before Christian and Joe knows this is like, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. Mm-hmm. And when I was reminded of that quote back at an info session we did at the NBA with a bunch of students a while back. Someone used it, and I said, "Oh my God, that really summarizes what I the advice I give, which is just know what know what you're doing. Like, be be smart, like be aware. And 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 by the way, that's a dial you can turn up to ten. That's your choice. It has nothing mm-hmm. to do with where you work or your boss or your school. Everything to do with your your uh, determination. And then opportunities, like as Joe likes to say." just showing up because you never know. And and I I put that in quotes because the showing up doesn't necessarily mean an event. It could mean taking advantage of the offer you just gave. Yep. Mm -hmm. Interacting with you. Like that'd be an amazing opportunity. And if you, and if you dial that up to 10 and you got the first dial at 10, guess what? You tend to get more lucky. Yep. Yep. I, I've, you know, obviously I've known Joe for, for a number of years and like him, his repeating message of just show up, just showing up, is so true. Just, you know, that could be the title of his memoirs, Christian, just showing up. Actually, the title is going to be a mixed bag of nuts. That's going to be the title. I already bought one book that he's written. Maybe that could be the sub, the subhead, you because that, because they work together, actually. (laughs) That's great. This is great. Thank you for having me on. Yes. Absolutely. So this is, again, thank you, Christian Matthews for the F1 and Williams F1 primer, but also the, really unique story of your career and how you got here by a lot of showing up. But we appreciate you joining us. Uh, we hope you have a great holiday. And Tom, we're at the end of another semester, hopefully with maybe one more before the end of the calendar year. Uh, we want to wish everybody a happy holidays. Um, and once again, thank you for listening. Thank you for joining in, taking yeah. up Christian on his his idea. Anybody who wants to join us has ideas. Always, You can always hit us up, both up. Um, thanks to our producer, Mike Schredder for again stepping in this week and uh, for Tom Richardson, our guest, Christian Matthews, I'm Joe Favorito. You've been listening to the cusp show. We will see you down the road.